Hello, we're back. Series four is supercharged and ready to go, and we cannot wait. I would say our appetites are wetted, but then I try not to remind myself the appalling weather that apparently passes for an English summer these days. As with previous series, we have a mixture of topical podcasts, focus guides, and issue-based discussions, all with the input, input of experts from Pump Court Chambers and beyond. Today, I'm joined once more by Maria Henty of Pump Court for her second visit to Chateau Pod. Listeners may remember Maria's podcast from Series 2, in which she provided an overview as to the state of the law on conduct towards the end of 2020. This time, Maria joins me for one of our nutshell guides, a how-to on instructing experts, both in Children Act and financial remedy proceedings. Hello, Maria. Hi, Mark. Good afternoon on well, we seem to have sunshine today, so that's I know, it's actually sunny. It, it, it killed my opening line, but, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not complaining. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased that Maria joins us for this episode because I can think of no one better to guide us through the do's and don'ts. Maria's practice principally encompasses private children and financial remedies, as well as public children work. And in each of those fields, she is continually praised for her meticulous preparation, her client handling and the inevitable good result. And meticulous preparation is a fairly obvious do, for expert instruction, but I won't get ahead of myself and I will turn to Maria. Starting at the beginning, Maria, what would you say are the ins- essential ingredients for any a- application under Part 25? The most important thing, Mark, to remember with Part 25 applications is to be prepared. And of your essential, essential ingredients, you've got to remember as soon as you possibly can to make the application. That may sound really basic, but there's no good waiting until you've sent the brief out to council or you're at the door of court or you're in discussions with your opponent uh, before you go in for your FDR or your FDA or your Fahudra to think, actually, we really could do with an expert here. So do it as soon as possible. There are some rules about that. In financial remedy applications, the rules say no later than the first appointment or your FDA. In children, uh, private children, no later than your Fahudra. And public law, no later than the first directions hearing. That's all um, quite easy to say, I suppose. I mean, we all know the practicalities are that sometimes things arise where you can't do it as soon as possible. It's only later on that you realise, ah, actually, I do need to speak to someone about that or I do need an expert opinion on that. And that's fine. But the most important thing is not to cause further delay to the court timetable or any waiting around for an expert. If you're going to do it, put people on notice of it and make the application. But ideally, it should be before those first trips to court. I mean, perhaps the best example, Mark, is... um, in financial remedies, if you've agreed a valuation of a property for FDR, obviously you're not going to be going off and getting a charter surveyors report. If you get to the end of that FDR and you haven't settled, um, you may be wanting to go off and get an expert report. Clearly you've not done that as the soonest opportunity, but you've been proportionate in not doing so. And so the court is likely to say, yeah, that, that's fine. That was a sensible approach, off you trot. The same with perhaps an ISW in private children. It may not be until you've seen the atrocious Section 7 report uh, or or you realise that actually they've only spoken to the mother and entirely bought into her narrative uh, that you want to go off and speak to someone else. 
and that's fine but really the key is be quick be organized and, and put people on notice it is no good waiting until the day before with that phone call with council or, or at the door of court to say ah actually we need an expert that's not going to wash and the more delayed we get with court proceedings the busier the courts get the less leniency we're going to be afforded by the judges so that's your first core ingredient is to make the application ASAP I think it's also important to remember before we've even got to court and making an application though is uh, when do we actually need to do this because in private children proceedings you always need permission for an expert that's not the case in money in money cases you can pop off and have an expert opinion all you need to do is get the court's permission to adduce that as evidence children because you've got children involved you need the court's permission straight away uh, and that's the same with schedule one claims as well because they fall under the children act so in fact before you even start making an application or thinking about it do i need to do this what can we agree with the other side and am I going to get my foot on the accelerator and get this going? I suppose as well, even even in money cases where you don't strictly need permission to get that expert evidence, you don't want to get it if there's a risk that it's not going to be adduced and you've effectively wasted that money. Well, quite. I mean, these are expensive instructions. Uh, the experts take a lot of time, sometimes quite stressful for parties as well, if they're having to cough up financial disclosure or in children cases having to be interviewed by psychiatrists, psychologists, you want to make sure this is, this is done properly. Um, I think your next core ingredient before you even make the application is thinking about what can be agreed. And again, trying to narrow those issues with the other side. Quite often, even in very hotly contested matters, there are things that can be agreed in respect of identities of experts, the type of expert you want to instruct, uh, and who and how the costs are going to be met. So do try and liaise with the other side, but if things get difficult, don't waste time bombarding each other with correspondence, get on with it, make the application uh, and let the court deal with it at the earliest opportunity. So once you've spoken to the other side, if, if you can't make any great swathes of progress in good time before your hearing, gather your information and it's all set out in the FPR for you. You need to know who you want to instruct. And I would suggest going on to any hearing with three to five different experts that you're thinking about if the other side are unwilling to agree one. But certainly go well armed with a list of people. Uh, you want to know what questions, at least in a broad sense, that you want to be asking these experts. There's no good asking them a question that's not within their field or their area of expertise. It's only going to cost you money, cause them confusion and probably irritate a judge later down the line. I suppose, sorry, I mean, that that's it, it, it can be quite tricky, can't it? Where it's a specific where it's quite a niche field. You know, you say you've got a child psychologist or something. You can think, well, if it's a child psychologist. They'll do the job. But if it's a specific kind of harm you're looking at, for example, if it's if it's sexual harm, you really you want a child psychologist or psychiatrist that's got experience dealing with sexual harm in children. Yes, and that's where it becomes so important to prepare and to get their CVs and to look at them. And again, it's no good waiting until two or three days before the hearing to contact the expert or their secretary to ask for their CVs, because by that point, if that comes in really late in the day, 
you may well discover, oh, actually this person who people have been raving about is going to be absolutely useless for my case because they've got an expertise in children who've been through the criminal justice system or have been abused. And actually I'm dealing with a very bog standard private law case where there's parental alienation. And actually there's no element of that in uh, of sexual abuse or, or, or the criminal justice system. Oh no, I've got completely the wrong expert by which point it's, it's far too late. And that expert is not going to do what you want them to do in all likelihood. Yes. Um, well, we'll come on to the court's approach, but but it's not going to persuade the court that 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 the permission should be granted if you've got the wrong expert. No, and I think again, this is where it's so important to prepare. What questions are you going to ask? Are they suitable to be asked of the experts you're looking at? One of the pitfalls people fall into, and we'll get to more pitfalls later on, is by placing a lot of reliance on uh, old letters of instructions they've used for other experts in other cases. Or just going on the back of, oh, my mate in chambers used him or her, he was great, she was brilliant, we'll use them again, without really scrutinising their skills and what they're able to assist with. And that can be quite foolhardy. So, again, it all comes down to planning and gathering your information. Because, mm. of course, uh, along with the expert CVs attached to your D11 application, if it's a finance case, uh, has to be the letter of instruction. Absolutely. But I think before we even get there, Mark, we need to know the costs of all of this yep. and the timeframes, because actually you may find the best expert in the country for your case, but they could be taking 19, 20 weeks, in which case, you know, if you're dealing with a quite urgent or pressing children matter, you're not going to be given that amount of time. If there's someone else, you can do it more quickly and just as well. Uh, we've also got to always keep an eye on costs, uh, even where there's legal aid available. Um, we, we've got to make sure this is proportion at the person you're instructing well if they're willing to work on legal aid rates as well and if they're willing to work on the legal aid rates um again before you even get out of the starting block what reading is this expert going to need need to undertake um when can they do their report for uh, are there dates hearing dates already in the diary i mean some courts now are listing final hearings right at the start are there dates when we need to know if they can attend I basically do not leave this to the last minute. Um, don't assume that a judge is going to allow an oral application when the paperwork is botched. And, and don't just assume um, that, that an application will be indulged when you don't have the required information about timescales and costs. And importantly, when you're coming from counsel's perspective, uh, make sure you've informed the solicitors that that's the information you, you need and say, I need to know how much mm. it's cost and when can they do it. Yes, you don't want to be in the position of saying to the court, well, we need an expert report, but I can't tell you how much it will cost or when it will be ready. Yeah, you're not going to get anywhere with that. No. The exception does seem to be pension experts, though. It does. It does. Um, save for one or two courts where you won't be allowed to apply or you won't be allowed in your FDA order to set out, you will be instructing a pensions on divorce expert. Um, most courts will indulge that some hazard lights with that though because as i've said already some courts won't let you do it without a report and, and that's really a case of know your judge and know your tribunal and you'll have to just get used to that really through experience the other thing to remember is actually it's, it's all well and good agreeing or having a judge order that you could have a pensions on divorce expert but if you've got a particularly gnarly set of questions that you want to ask this pensions expert you really need to make sure that 
you know what's going to be asked in that letter of instruction that you haven't drafted that you don't have because you haven't got it at court because you're doing it orally mm. and get them into that fda order otherwise it's all completely futile because you'll be going back anyway or the poor client will be engaging in lengthy correspondence trying to argue are we having report done at 65 60 are we ring fencing something? I mean, what, what's going on? So if you're going to go down that route, have the argument in that FDA hearing about the questions they're going to be asked if you think they're going to be problematic. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, so I think, I mean, unless you've got any more essential ingredients to share with me, I will, um, I'll ask about the, the, the test that the court applies. And it's, I think it's slightly different, isn't it, in children and financial remedy cases? Well, there were just two points really Mark or two or three actually I mean I think the important thing to remember is for children you're on the general C2 form for money you're on the general D11 form Um, you've got to make sure you include within that application so within those forms the draft order and one of the things that I quite often see missing from the draft orders is the provision for questions of the expert clarifying anything that's been said in the report within the 10 days and making sure that the party asking the questions is the one paying for them. Mm. Uh, Also making sure that um, you've got a draft letter of instruction. Uh, And again, so many applications fall down because they're not prepared on that draft letter of instruction. Really, you need to get that out to everyone well in advance of the hearing and try and agree it before you even go in to see the judge, either by way of correspondence beforehand, even if the principle of instructing the expert isn't agreed, or between counsel outside of court. A judge is going to hate in a busy FDA list or a busy for Hoodra list, going line by line through a letter of instruction. And if you, there's a surefire way of winding a judge up is to ask them to do the job that should have been done by the litigators or by counsel before we've got to that stage. Um, It's really worth getting right. It's really worth getting and spending the time on it. Um, But but again, that's an essential ingredient. So I think to to sort of summarize, Mark, in terms of our key ingredients to getting the ball rolling on this is do it as soon as possible, get those CVs, get the cost estimate, get the time estimates, use the correct form, the C2 or the 11, do a draft order, get the content of that accurate and my God, do the draft letter of instruction and append that because otherwise you're going to upset a lot of judges very easily. In that draft letter of instruction, it's really important to set everything out clearly, avoid irrelevant information and remind the expert of their duties. And it's suggested in the FPR to attach practice direction 25B and 25E which sets out what their responsibilities to the court are. Sounds really basic, but we've got to get the basics right. Yeah, and you you do see some, it's difficult with a pensions expert, there is the, there's the pro forma that's appended to the PAG report that's very Mm. helpful, but it's not always the case. No, exactly. And I I think these letters of instruction are are so overlooked and rushed and, and it can make all the difference. They really need to be focused and clear. Otherwise you're not going to get what you want out of the expert and it will be a waste of money. Very important if you're dealing with children in particular is to identify who the parties are and identify whether the children can be spoken to. Again, that's something that can be massively overlooked, um, but is very important. And you need the court's permission for that to happen. 
and you need the court's permission. And something that people again overlook because it doesn't necessarily concern them immediately, but it's probably one of the most pressing things on the minds of the expert is how's it going to be funded? Yes, yeah. And that needs to go into your letter of instruction. So it, it's very, very important to get the letter of instruction right. If you can't agree it, the court will get involved. Um, but really, you've got to try and sort that out beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well um, I will now ask what the test is uh, for, for getting these applications. We've done all our work. We've got our letter of instruction. It's beautiful. It's been agreed between the parties, but the principle isn't agreed. So we go to court at the first appointment of Fahudra. What, what, what test, what do we have to persuade the court to do? Well, tediously, it's, it's, it's the word necessary that crops up so often in law that crops up here. Uh, and the reference uh, most referred to is, is the Children and Families Act 2014, Section 13.6, and the court may grant permission uh, where the evidence is necessary to assist the court to resolve the proceedings justly. And necessary means necessary which I'm not sure is necessarily the most helpful definition, um, but it's somewhere between uh, the case law says indispensable, useful, reasonable or desirable. So we're looking at quite a wide spectrum. It's not going to be allowed if it's a fishing exercise. In children cases, it's not going to be allowed if it's really going to take us no further forward, but is there to appease or quieten a party. The court is going to scrutinise these applications carefully and what I would suggest you do if you're making your application to a judge is look at section 13.7 of the Children and Families Act, which I won't bore you with, but there is quite a nice little list there. As ever, it's not exhaustive, but I would have a look through it. And it's quite handy, actually, just looking at it. Obviously, this applies for children proceedings, but it's quite a helpful aid memoir for considerations in finance proceedings as well. Oh, um, absolutely. There's no reason why it can't be used in those. Uh, there's also a very helpful little quote uh, from a case called AV Expert Report 2020 uh, EWCA Civ uh, 346 paragraph 21 um, and judges are expected to scrutinize carefully all applications for the instruction of an expert and only allow them uh, when satisfied the expert's opinion is necessary to assist the court to resolve the proceedings justly uh, and that's a direct quote from uh, paragraph 21 and again you will see that that's really where the courts focus are that you're not going to be indulged with frivolous applications uh, particularly in children because of the obvious ramifications of dragging them in if they need to be involved with further experts um, but again the court really is keeping an eye on the overriding objective and, and these sorts of instructions do cause delay and they also cause the complete derailment of proceeding timetables because inevitably there's slippage or experts are delayed or questions cause further delay or there are problems getting people to court and all sorts of things. Um, and they've got to be needed. It's, I suppose there's a proportionality approach as well, isn't there? You might have a, a company in finance proceedings that is an asset, but then it's got a net asset value of, I don't know, 25,000, 30,000 pounds. It's a simplistic way of looking at things and things can have different values, but but you've got to draw a line somewhere about what's proportionate because, like you say, the delay, uh, as much as anything else, can be really problematic. 
Totally. And we see it all the time, Mark, in low value financial remedy cases with things like um, capital gains tax reports. Do we actually need one of those or are we talking so uh, in such a way that actually going and using the online calculator is completely sufficient rather than instructing an accountant? And likewise, with, with pension experts as well, the number of times that I've had judges sort of raise an eyebrow and say, well, surely we could split this in half and no one would bat an eyelid. This is quite easy maths, um, particularly in cases where one party has nil pension provision. It, it's worrying sometimes to then see a pension report. Uh, and again, when it's all defined contribution, for example. Correct. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, these are really quite straightforward issues. I'm not suggesting that that's a sort of standard approach to take, but take a step back and think, is this really proportionate given the figures involved and given um, how easy some of this could be on a, on a more rough and ready basis when parties don't have thousands of pounds to spend on experts unnecessarily? Yes, well, I suppose it's the, it's the legacy of the PAG report and, and to a lesser extent WH is perhaps a, uh, an over-caution now in terms of I think people take the figure too literally of oh well we've got uh, we've got a pension of this size therefore we must have a report Mm. actually look at you need to look at what type of pension it is and just to take a common sense approach as well is this really going to make a huge difference if we're talking two or three percent what's going to happen what's going to be the outcome is this worth spending thousands of pounds on and sometimes the answer is no well, and I mean, I, you will have seen it in lockdown as much as me, the FDRs that were adjourned and adjourned and adjourned because pension reports weren't ready. Well, quite. And, and the, 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 the extra cost, the associated cost is just dreadful. I mean, it's well worth reminding your clients that if you stay in litigation for six, seven months longer, the very nature of staying in litigation, whether you're sending two letters a month or 20, is expensive. And if you're talking about a low value case, then actually it does make a difference and it's worth cutting your losses and pressing ahead without experts. Well, what would you say, like you say, necessary is really the test. What would you say are the, the common pitfalls for around Part 25 applications? I mean, you've talked about essential ingredients, but is there anything that you feel really should be highlighted? Well, I, I've got four common pitfalls, Mark, that I, I'd like to go through. Um, in terms of tests for, for, for money and children, I, th- I think, as you say, we've talked about that, but I'd like to stress what we said earlier, which is looking at that Children and Families Act, even if you're doing a money's case, it, it's, it's a helpful um, list, basically. Um, pitfall number one is not providing the court with details as to timescales, costs and experts. So if you've not listened to this podcast and taken my excellent advice and you've rocked up to court without uh, the information that the judge requires to assess whether uh, this is a necessary and proportionate um, instruction and whether it can be done within the court timetable or if you're doing a children's case, the the timetable of the child, um, you're going to have difficulties. It is absolutely vital, as I've said, that this is not left until the last minute. Um, Judges will ask counsel, they need to know how long is this going to take and what is it going to cost and what is this expert going to look at? If you get that wrong or if you don't have that information, it completely taints the rest of the application because it looks like it's been prepared in a rush and that it's not really ready for consideration by the court. The the real risk of that, of course, is that a judge says, no, not today, move on. 
if you're then still saying, well, I, I do really need this report, you're going to have to ask for a separate hearing. And of course, that comes with the obvious risk of delay and cost, not only cost of turning up and making an application that you might lose, but cost reserved potentially from a previous hearing or even at a push costs of losing a final hearing if you're not hearing that application until things like council's deemed fees have been in uh, or, or similar. So there, there's a huge amount at stake if you don't get this right. The biggest thing is, though, you're told, no, you can't have this expert. Yeah. I mean, is there a risk if you you come along to, say, a first appointment with a poorly constructed uh, application gets rejected, you have another go. And even if you succeed, you know, you'd be thinking as the other side, well, look, this should have been dealt with at the first appointment, regardless of the merits. This 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 we're having this separate hearing because of a, a mistakes around the application. And it's a proportionality argument. And I think the other side in that scenario would have a very good leg to stand on in terms of the overriding objective, particularly in a low value case. Why are we having an additional hearing? Why are we having additional delay? Do we really need this? Is it proportionate? And the longer you leave it and the less organised you are, the worse position you're going to be in. And I think that's compounded when you're dealing with children because of the obvious impact of delay on them or in a case where you're dealing with finances, where there are children in a house who also need resolution, or, or a, a wife or a husband whose needs mean that actually they need to get on with the application. All the while you put people in the centre of that question, um, you, you're going to struggle if you're creating extra delay when it's really obvious what you should be doing because it's set out in the FPR. Yeah. That was that's pitfall number one, and we've sort of gone into what happens if you uh, fall into this pitfall. What's number two? Number two is not having provided a draft letter of instruction, and that creates all sorts of issues. It means the advocates aren't able to work on it before the hearing. It means the court can't assist with it in the hearing if it's not agreed, or you end up trying to cobble together something in a rush, and it, actually when you look at it later, it's a bit of a disaster. Um, and you risk the judge again of just saying no, with the same impact of having to go through making another application, having it heard another day, uh, and the costs and the like. Um, there is case law in respect of the letters of instruction. Uh, judges will step in. Um, but Mr Justice Moore, in a case called CM and CM from 2019, it's uh, EWFC 16, um, had a, a nice short 12-paragraph judgment and making clear that he was very unhappy with the state of letters of instructions coming before the court, waiting for a judge to adjudicate on them. Um, it's, it's just a 12 paragraph judgment. The first one, paragraph number one, expresses his dismay at having two applications on a matter that he'd already, he thought, dealt with at the FDA. Uh, and then he says at paragraph 10, uh, the following, and it's, it's worth remembering, uh, High Court judges are exceptionally busy they do not have time to draft letters of instruction or even to determine disputes as to the wording of such letters. And this is a high court judge. If you're in, in the situation where you're in front of a district judge or a circuit judge, they're even busier. So you can imagine how dismayed they would be if they're being asked to rule on a letter of instruction. Uh, and he goes on to say on this occasion, there was no legitimate dispute as I'd already made an order that set out the issues uh, that Mr. Bizant had to consider. I assume that's the expert. If, however, in a future case, there is a genuine issue as to drafting, I consider that it would be exactly the sort of matter that should be referred to an arbitrator. You can see from that just how 
limited the court's, court's resources are in terms of resolving these very practical issues, either deal with them at the FDA and put it into the body of the order if you don't have a letter of instruction, at the very least the key topics in the hope that solicitors will be able to sort it out, or more straightforward, get the letter of instruction there early and get people to look at it before you see the judge. It's particularly important if you've got a litigant in person, they should not be given that document at the door of court or expected in any way, shape or form to be able to digest it during a hearing. They're complicated and they're important and it's got to be done in advance. Yeah, and I suppose you're asking a judge to say, yes, this is necessary. One of the most important things that letter of instruction does is set out the scope of the instruction. Yeah. How can you say it's necessary unless you fully understand the scope of the instruction? And I think, again, it goes to impressing upon a judge that you know what you're talking about and you know why you're making that application. If you don't have the letter of instruction, it doesn't fill a court with confidence that this is something that is really necessary and important. Because if it were, why wouldn't you have done it beforehand? Yeah, absolutely. It shouldn't be an afterthought, really. No. Um, pitfall number three. Um, this relates to children. Uh, and it's too many experts having spoken with or dealt with the children. And again, it comes down to timing, but do not leave it too late in the proceedings to consider whether you need an ISW or a psychological assessment. Uh, it, it can make all the difference getting one of those sorts of experts involved. But if you've been in proceedings for a year, a year and a half, two years, the children have spoken to someone from CAFCAS, they, they've had a few people involved in play therapy at school or something similar, uh, they're having supervised contact, they've met all these different professionals. If you then come to the court two years down the line and say, actually, sorry, judge, uh, we'd like them to see another social worker or another CAFCAS officer or, or another whoever, or another uh, have another assessment done, um, the judge is going to really question whether that's in the, the best interest of the children. And of course, there's an element of risk with that because actually children can fatigue of being questioned by experts. And you've got to ask, well, actually, if we've left it that long, what is the quality of this interaction going to be? Yeah. Are these children simply going to take one look at another adult wanting to talk to them about their mum or dad and walk straight back out the room or behave in such a way that it makes the expert instruction completely pointless and a waste of money? Again, it comes down to you thinking about your case right at the outset and coming up with a plan. If this CAFCAS report doesn't do what we want, if this mother continues to push these children away despite CCI, what are we going to do? Are we going to get an ISW? We're going to look at psychological assessments, have a game plan, work out who you'd want to instruct and get on with it because the courts are going to focus on bringing children proceedings to an end as soon as they can. They're going to focus on the welfare. They're not going to indulge you two years down the line in bringing in those other people. When it comes back to that checklist under 13.7, doesn't it? The first point on the checklist is the impact uh, that giving permission would have on the welfare of the children concerned. Exactly. And it may be that it might help your case, but again, everything's enmeshed. Is it going to damage the children further? Because if it does, even if you have a report that's helpful, you may well have inadvertently pushed those children away. And particularly if you've got one of the parents who is alienating or isolating, because you can be absolutely assured that they will have told or, or, or inferred upon the children that this is being brought about by the other parent. 
Um, mm. And I think the sooner you, you can do it, the better, basically. All right. And pitfall number four. Uh, pitfall number four, we've already sort of talked about. Um, it was in respect of the pensions on divorce experts. And oh. really it was just to say, no, you're caught um, because you may not turn up with an application needing a, a POD report, PODE report, uh, and then suddenly discover that your judge is insistent upon one. Uh, and then you, you're in a bit of a sticky position because that should be straightforward. But um, you might find that you're told no. Yes, well, there's a certain district judge who insists on a D11 being filed uh, after the event anyway. Exactly. Uh, I, think, I think in part just to focus minds, actually, in terms of letter of instruction and, and identity of expert. I mean, it is correct that you need an application, so it's not, it's not wrong. I think people are just slightly complacent when it comes to pensions. Um, but actually, again, focusing the mind or perhaps even just drawing up that letter of instruction... And maybe what's needed. I mean, it's, it's not, not a bad practice to have done the letter of instruction before the hearing, even if you're not going to be doing a full-blown D11, um, setting out why you want an expert and the timescales and etc. I mean, it would be helpful, certainly from counsel's perspective, to see exactly what it is that you want to ask this person. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you about the risks of a poorly constructed application, but we've touched on that really. I mean, it's it's the application not succeeding is potentially costs in a money case. I just wanted to ask you one more thing. We obviously have the D11. You have that space for evidence. It's, uh, is it box 10 from memory? Um, would you be saying that in that D11, the person drafting it should actually be setting out why the application is necessary, effectively front load that argument that obviously would be developed in court? I can't see the harm in that. My view is that if you can make the judge's life easy, you should. If you can set out their judgment in bullet point form, their decision in bullet point form, right from the off, right on the face of that first application, you should. Bearing in mind just how busy they are, the time pressures of FDA lists, make it obvious what you want and why, and come prepared. I, I yeah. think that's the take-home message of, of this podcast for anyone listening is prepare and make sure you know your onions. So bear in mind the words of Scar, be prepared. Be prepared. <laughs> I'm not going to try and sing. Oh, damn it. Well, um, then I will, I'll have to bring it in the absence of singing song, I'll bring this podcast to an end. <laughs> Maria, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Um, thank you so much for listening to our existing listeners. We hope to continue to provide the quality and level of content you've now come to expect. And to any new listeners, welcome. Our back catalogue is out there waiting for you on all the usual platforms. We've got lots more to come this series. In particular, I'll be speaking to Julian Reed of Pump Court about what would happen if Britney Spears was in this jurisdiction, not California. Uh, indeed, as Britney would say, we're stronger than ever before. And after that awful joke, I shall say goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you.